Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to the 2022 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. A proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 282, we visit with Robert Whitlow, author of Trial and Error, and many other best-selling faith-based legal thrillers set in the South. In Trial and Error, a small-town lawyer has been searching for his daughter for 18 years when another young woman in the town goes missing. Buddy Smith has built his law practice around tracking down missing children, and he's determined to find both women, no matter the cost. As Buddy pursues one woman, he uncovers clues that could bring him closer to the girl he thought he lost forever, his own daughter. Robert Whitlow is winner of the prestigious Christie Award for Contemporary Fiction. He received his JD with honors from the University of Georgia School of Law, where he served on the staff of the Georgia Law Review and continues to practice law Charlotte, North Carolina. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at LandisWay.com. There's pre-order information there uh, for ebook and print book as well. For everything related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, we have a podcast newsletter called The Book Report. You can sign up at uh, charlotteriespodcast.com and stay up with what's going on with the podcast. And if you're interested in what I'm doing with my writing, you can go to landisway.com and sign up for my author newsletter where I share information about my writing and upcoming novel, Deadly Declarations. Hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. One final part to consider, if you like audiobooks, check out Libro.fm, and if you sign up to get audiobooks from them, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, and you might get uh, something extra. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, also congratulations on the novel. Thank you. What are we up to now? How many we got? Uh, that's that's number 20. Wow, that's amazing. That's that's quite a feat while you're practicing law. Well, it's uh, I've been part-time really for a number of years and divide myself between the law and the writing, and uh, it's worked well. Well, even part-time, I know there are distractions that can get into <laughs> in, in your way when you're trying to get into a novel, so that's still pretty amazing. I mean, so... I know that there are lawyers in Charlotte who've written novels. Maybe, you know, there's some one-offs and there are people that wrote one or two or three. And I've now got my fourth coming out in the spring. But you don't see too many in Charlotte who've written 20 novels. I mean, come on, what gives here? <laughs> well, I've had a contract, Landis. Okay. I mean, <laughs> you had to comply with your contract. That's yeah. right. You know how it is. You have deadlines. and uh, Yeah. <clears throat> no, I've really been fortunate 
uh, you know, my whole career, I've been with the same publisher. Uh, it's now a, uh, an imprint of HarperCollins. And, uh, you know, that's brought real stability and organization and, like I said, deadlines. And, yeah. and you know, once you've written a book, uh, it's kind of like that well's un, untapped and you realize, you know, this can be done. And, and I, you know, I'm sure you found it the same. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoy the process. Yeah, it really is uh, fun to immerse yourself in it. Um, I, I guess uh, you probably run into lawyers around town who say, hey, man, I've been thinking about writing a book. What, this can't be that hard, right? <laughs> yeah, I tell them, go ahead and write it. Get started. Get started. And then and then you tell them, and when you finish that first draft, then what? You know. Yeah, then the fun begins. You've got to embrace the editing um, yeah. process as well. In all seriousness, I mean, I think it's, I do love editing because it's a chance to obviously make it better, uh, clean things up, make it more focused, uh, just do the things necessary so that when a reader picks it up, you disappear and they're, uh, they're immersed in the world of the characters in the story. Yeah, I think our fellow lawyers and maybe even a lot of readers would be surprised at how many times we go through these drafts to revise and revise and revise until we find our way into the to the final story. Yeah, that's uh, that's like I said, I love that process. And uh, one of the neat things, the I guess the last five books that I've done. I've had the uh, editor with the publisher, but they've also uh, hired our oldest son. My oldest son, is he's now 40. Uh, he's a really smart guy. He works a corporate job, but he's also been one of the editors and on the substantive phase where you're really looking at the big picture of the story and the characters. And it's been so much fun working with one of your kids, uh, you know, in a professional way. And, and he really gets me. And, you know, he knows how to bless me and, you know, and how to call me out and, and really how to enhance, you know, what I'm able to uh, produce. So, Robert, uh, in, into the kind of books that you write for just a second. Uh, at the top of the show, I talked about you writing these best-selling faith-based legal novels set in the South. And I'd like to focus on that for just a moment. Um, what is a faith-based novel and why do you write them? Yeah, I think, uh, well, that's just what helps the librarians out uh, <laughs> and the folks at Barnes & Noble. Um, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the stories are about obviously fictitious people, but uh, the characters do reflect uh, real life. And, you know, a very common aspect of life uh, especially I might say in the South perhaps is the element of faith and how that impacts uh, who the people are and how they act and how they interact and uh, what motivates them and what interests them and uh, just their internal thought process, just really across the whole scope of who they are as, as, a, as people. And so what my goal is, is when that aspect of the story is told, I work hard to make the characters capable of carrying the weight of that aspect of who they are. And what I mean by that, that they can portray that aspect of their personality, their belief, their character uh, 
uh, attributes in a credible way. And it's something that's believable. Like somebody could think that and they would act that way. And so when you start putting that into a story, then that becomes, uh, that helps, that, that kind of causes the label to attach. I'm not upset about the label. It doesn't bother me. Uh, but uh, that's, that's kind of what the dynamic is. And that's my goal is to, to do that aspect of the story in a way that it's, uh, it's believable based on who the characters are. I do have readers write me from time to time and say, well, I don't agree with that character. And I just say, well, you just have to take it up with them. Well, that, that, yeah, that's true. Well, um, yeah, because, you, you know, all characters in a book are going to be on some kind of journey. And it looks like your characters, um, you know, are kind of on a faith-based journey, at least in this book. Uh, the, the main character, Buddy Smith, the lawyer, will talk about them. And his Gracie Blaylock, who is the clerk of court, she's much more found in her religion than Buddy is. And to the point that she even, you know, you've got her praying a lot through the book. And actually, you got her praying with outcomes coming true. And I was just wondering about that because, you know, prayer doesn't always come true for, for people, but it seemed like for Gracie, it did. Yeah. Gracie, uh, if Gracie was a major league ball player, she'd be an all-star. Exactly. Exactly. And, she, uh, and really in some ways, I'll tell you, Landis, uh, that Gracie character, uh, was influenced, uh, frankly, by my wife. And just kind of her inner life and her process. And it's worked for her. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to drop this into a story and, and make it a part of the, uh, the dynamic. And the other thing about that particular character, you know, I, uh, I love to think about archetypes and archetypal structure and stories. And so in this particular story, Gracie, even though she's the same age as the main character on their thirties, she kind of fulfills the mentor archetype. She's kind of his guide to a degree, uh, you know, in the journey that you described, which is obviously, you know, what's taking place in every story. And before we talk about what's at stake in this uh, novel, I'm, I'm curious as to how you tie your sort of real life, uh, practice of law with, with these 20 novels, because in this particular book, you know, we're not in the courtroom that often. I mean, we have a lawyer, he's a character and, and he does use the legal process to help, you know, solve the mystery here, but, uh, he's not in court. What about your other 20 novels? Are you in court in those? Or? In some of them, uh, yeah. out of 20, you're going to find that. <laughs> Early in my career, I was, uh, when I was in Georgia, I was a, uh, a civil trial lawyer, but also in our small town, you had to handle indigent defense. And so the first five years of my practice, I had considerable experience in criminal trial work, uh, several murder cases. You know, I, I was able to, you know, redeem some of that experience <laughs> and, and pull it into some stories. But you know, one thing I found Landis in writing these novels is, it's, it seems to me more effective to kind of dip in and out of the courtroom scenes than having a lot of prolonged courtroom encounters. I've done that before, but as you know, court's pretty boring, except <laughs> for the people that are actually involved in it. 
Yeah. And you have to compress it so much in a story that it just seems for me to work better to kind of move in and out. And in this particular uh, novel, I think, you know, we have some motion scenes and stuff like that. And it doesn't get into the, it's more about the investigation than it is about the legal uh, process per se. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, lawyers aren't always in court, and probably five percent of the time, if they're a litigator, do they actually go to go to do a do a trial? Uh, you know, they're they're popping in and out. But you did take us to court and show us a little bit about the personality of the judge, the way he handled court, which was kind of fun and interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I just thought that you know, because even some of the most famous, like John Grisham, and some of his books, his lawyers aren't always in court; they're kind of moving around the legal process a lot to, to get there. So, uh, all right. I want to ask you this question because this award you got, the Christie Award. We had Chris Fabry on the show. And I don't know if you know Chris, but he's won five Christie Awards. And right. Author of more than 80 novels. Um, that is a prestigious award. It comes from uh, writing novels that, uh, you know, have a faith-based component to it. But they're still, look, you're not preaching. They're still, they got to be interesting stories or people aren't going to buy them, right? That's, that's the way it works. <laughs> Yeah. So what did it mean to you to win that win that award? I mean, it was gratifying. I think the the thing that was kind of personally just had an impact on me is when I I checked into the hotel in Atlanta downtown where the uh, this was going to take place. And my my kids asked me later, they said, well, what was it like? I said, it's kind of like the Oscars. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, when I checked into the hotel and I looked out the window of the hotel, across the block was the office tower where I had clerked for a law firm in Atlanta after my second year in law school. And that firm had offered me a job and I didn't take it. And because I didn't take that job, I took my career path, took a different direction. And I honestly, I just realized, you know, if I'd taken that job, I probably would have been in that tower as a partner in a law firm in downtown Atlanta, but it's kind of doubtful that I ever would have written a book. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> you'd have had other commitments. I things. would have. Yeah. And, you know, working in a small town practice for many years in Dalton, Georgia, before I came here in 96, I had a whole different set of life experience that, you know, I think it's influenced and inspired the writing. So yeah, it was a, it was gratifying to get some recognition, but uh, hey, it's it's awesome, Landis, yeah. to be on your show. I mean, come yeah. on. Hey, well, thank you. It's uh, well, I'm, you know, I don't know. I, I couldn't get the novels written while I was practicing law until the very, very end. And I said, well, if I'm really going to do this, I gotta, I gotta stop practicing law and go, you know, pick up the microphone and pick up the, uh, pick up the computer more. Well, let, I'm gonna tell the listeners that uh, Robert, after we finish here, we're gonna uh, jump over to Patreon listeners, and we're gonna talk about uh, how. Four of Robert's uh, novels have been turned into movies. We're going to talk about that process going from novel to movie. And you can join us there at uh, Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. For about the cost of a cup of coffee a month, you can get over 120 exclusive episodes. Hope you join us and listen to that. All right, let's jump into the inciting incident, uh, Robert. Uh, In the prologue here, there are babies being born. Two men meet in the waiting room. One is Buddy Smith. He's very young and unmarried before he became a lawyer. And one is a man who later became Buddy Smith's client when the daughter that was born uh, 
goes missing when she's a teenager. So uh, you got a little reading I think you're going to do as part of the show here from the very beginning of the book. So whenever you're ready, just take it away. Buddy Smith sat on a green vinyl chair in the expectant father's waiting room at the Milton County Memorial Hospital. He stretched out his lanky five foot 11 inch frame and ran his fingers through his light brown hair. The minute hand on a large round clock on the wall clicked forward. It was 3 a.m. Buddy yawned. Amber Melrose, his girlfriend, was in labor in the delivery suite. To Buddy's right sat a man wearing faded jeans and work boots with red Georgia clay caked on the sides. The, land, the man leaned back, rested his head against the wall, and pulled a red ball cap down over his eyes. A minute later, he snorted, and his head jerked up. He rubbed his eyes and glanced at Buddy. Did I snore? He asked. My wife claims I start making a racket even before I'm asleep. I wouldn't call it snoring. Well, what did it sound like? Buddy thought for a moment. More like the noise you'd make when telling a little kid what a pig sounds like. The man laughed and slapped his thigh with the palm of his hand. That's exactly what Crystal claims, and she's usually right. Buddy cracked a smile. I'm Sammy Landry, the man said, extending his hand to Buddy. Crystal is about to pop out our fifth pup. She likes having me around when she checks into the maternity ward and they stick in the epidural. But after that, she doesn't want me bothering her while she works. The nurse knows to bring me back when it's time for the big push. Leaning forward, Buddy listened closely to what the man was saying. Babies look gross when they first come out, Sammy continued. But every woman in the room thinks they're beautiful. I'm cool with holding a newborn after they clean it up, but I give it back to Crystal as quick as I can. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so I, I did notice you like to inject the humor into the books as well. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, if, uh, I've tried to do that in my law practice, when I used to have to make an oral argument, I try to come up with something to entertain the, the judge or the, yeah. Yeah. you know, just to, I mean, they need it as much as anybody, possibly more. Exactly. All right. So having done that reading, uh, we've got these uh, two men here. Um, one is, as you said, he's about to have his fifth pup. Uh, of course, Buddy, he is uh, about 17 or 18 years old. He, he, you know, it's a premarital pregnancy. Um, and then right away, we find out when the book starts that, uh, you know, it's 18 or so years later, I guess. And Buddy's now a practicing lawyer. He's sort of got this practice where he can help people find missing children. And we learned that his child, the one that was born in that opening scene, uh, disappeared a few days after, you know, she was born along with his girlfriend at the time. And uh, so let's talk about the what if, Robert. Where, where do you get your ideas and where did this one come to you? Um, well, you get your ideas. Uh, you know, one, you might have a plot idea. And then um, sometimes you come up with a character that you want to write about. And then sometimes there might be an issue or a topic that you just like to make the centerpiece of a, of a story. And with this one, it was more about uh, thinking about Buddy and about that whole dynamic of the search, you know, for the missing child. And 
my wife, I mentioned her earlier in the in the podcast, she was adopted as an infant and she found her birth fam her birth family as an adult. And that's just an inherently dramatic uh, sequence of events. And I thought it would be interesting to explore that from the male side. You know, often it's the woman who's looking. And I said, it'd be kind of interesting to turn that more common paradigm on its head and say, okay, with the guy and what kind of a man would want to do that. And then what would be the process that he would go through uh, to try to find that child. Uh, And then what would be the, the ramifications of finding her if he did. So are these all new characters that they appeared in previous book? Uh, yeah, this is a standalone. Okay. So trying to figure out, okay, who, who, who should be the one to have to search for a daughter? And you sort of came up with Buddy. He's, uh, let's talk about Buddy a second. He's sort of a small town practitioner, but everybody seems to like him, but he's got, he had an overbearing father, right? Who uh, becomes part of the plot as well. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's an open, there's another scene in the, one of the early chapters, which probably would have been my second choice to read. And uh, Buddy is, I mean, he's a good son. He's looking after his mom, who's a widow, and he's over at her house. And uh, he uh, finds out she needs a light bulb changed in the stair staircase going down to the basement. So obviously he offers to do that. And uh, I remember when I was writing that scene, he uh, goes down to, to change the light bulb. He looks down at the, the bottom of the stairs, and there's a box down there. And as his dad, who's deceased, had left a bunch of stuff, and it was all boxed up. And I remember thinking when I was writing that scene, I wonder what's in that box. <laughs> <laughs> so I had the character. This is all true, Landis. I'm just yeah. So I had him go down there, open the box. I could not believe what was in there. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, we don't want to tell too much about it, but, uh, you know, we do find early on that his father has acted in a way that he didn't expect his father would act toward his former girlfriend and may somehow be involved in why she disappeared. We don't know. So that's part of what he's investigating and so forth. But at the same time, uh, he can't really chase that because this man he met in the prologue in the waiting room, you know, that young you know, daughter who was born that day when she's a teenager, she disappears. Right. So, so he's trying to help him find her. Right. And that's, uh, as you said, that was kind of a, a little side niche to his practice. Uh, you know, it wasn't a real uh, economic part of it, but it was kind of reflecting his heart uh, and the kind of person that he was. Yeah. And so did you have an experience uh, with this? I mean, people sometimes think, well, if you went to law school, you know all the laws. And so if you went to law school, you know all, you know, the, the elements of all the claims of all the, you know, what's the, you, you have to do a little research, right, Robert? Yeah, you do. And just so uh, I don't get a, an email from, you know, somebody like you that said, hey, yeah. you know, the federal rules don't allow that. And, exactly. Uh, exactly. So <clears throat> I try to keep it kind of basic most of the time. Right. And, and I do know what it feels like to, to walk in there in front of the judge. And uh, I think that's one thing I enjoy is kind of portraying that dynamic. And I'll tell you one thing, you've probably found this true as well. One of the 
greatest things I've enjoyed is making the judges say and do what I want them to do. It's just been an awesome experience. I I was asked recently about that uh, with my novel that's coming out in the spring, which does have some courtroom scenes in it. And uh, they were saying, you know, what is that like? I mean, writing these courtroom scenes, I'm like, it is so nice to be in control of the narrative. (laughs) I walk into this fictional courtroom and and, and I'm not going to get hurt. Everything's going to go just the way I want it to go. Right. Yeah. Not, not real life. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's, inc- it's incredibly uh, powerful. I, uh, I worked part time for a couple of years uh, when I first started writing back in 96. And uh, then when I got back into more full-time work, you know, I had to get back in the reality of, of what that's like when you're, uh, when you don't control things. Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the protagonist, Buddy Smith, his his supporter, Gracie Blaylock, uh, um, antagonist. You know, you can't have a really, a, you know, a good story without some obstacles, without some antagonists. And I'm wondering here um, about the antagonist for this story. Um, it appears that maybe Buddy's deceased father could be one. Uh, the young mother who ran away with Buddy's child kind of feels like an antagonist early on, but also maybe just the circumstances of, you know, not knowing what happened to your child. Is that also an antagonist here? Yeah, uh, you nailed it. I mean, that's, that's really it. It's, uh, it's the, uh, the uncertainty, the, uh, really the, the inability to control life is, is an opposition force that we all face. And, you know, it's not something that you can name like you can a, an evil person, but it is a reality. And so I didn't personify in a major way, you know, an antagonist here, but it was really just the life circumstance and the challenge that's faced by the characters that, that they're having to try to overcome. And, and I get the sense in reading your book um, and, and having interviewed over 300 authors now, um, you know, I'm finding my way toward what I didn't know about writing when I first started, which was how important the characters are versus the plot. And it seems to me that you have a good time spending time with your characters. Is that true? That's, I love it. And that's one of the things I have to uh, change and edit. Uh, sometimes I have so much, I'm just playing with the characters so much that I'm, I'm not moving things along. And uh, I have to confront that reality about myself and my writing. But, you know, I enjoy I enjoy creating the characters uh, experience in their lives because I'm the whole thing is if I'm starting to experience it as the writer, then you hope that that's going to transfer to the vicarious experience of the reader, that they'll be able to enter that world. And, for example, in this book, experience a little bit about what it's like to be the coach of a of a girls fast pitch softball team i mean how often do you do you get to go to that world yeah and, uh, exactly that's what gracie blaylock was doing she was going to to do that i figured it probably wasn't a public school because they were praying after every practice you know so <laughs> this was summer league oh summer league okay. that's right that's how i got around there okay <laughs> and plus i'll tell you what landis you and this is the truth uh i mean you go to small town georgia yeah 
I mean, the separation between church and state, it's it's a lot fuzzier than it is in some other places. Yeah. And you mentioned small town. This book was set in a small town. Uh, did your background, as you said, you know, practicing in Dalton, did that help in writing a book like this? Yeah. And I grew up in small towns in North Georgia. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was, and it was a great life. I mean, really, I'm not being too idyllic about it, but it really was a, a lot of, uh, you know, you draw on that. I mean, you know, you know, the axioms are you write what you know and you write what you're passionate about. And uh, so I know that world. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, I think readers like to explore that environment. And, you know, if, if, if you're a Southerner, you know, I don't write about life in Minnesota because I don't really know about life in Minnesota. But if you write about what you know, then you can bring the texture and the nuance to it that I think makes it a richer experience for, for everybody. I agree with that. I, I, a couple of writing life questions here. Um, after 20 novels, Robert, how do you get up for the next one? Well, I, uh, I said, what do I want to write about? And I'm not a guy that has a, a file folder of ideas that I pull from. I really focus hundred percent on my work in progress and then when I finish, I, uh, I'll take a few weeks and uh, just think about what I want to do next. And that's pretty much what happens. Um, sometimes it does have a, it'll have a, like I wrote a, a book called A Time to Stand, which was also nominated for Christie Award. It didn't win it, but I wrote that book after uh, what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. And I said, you know, I'd like to address aspects of that in a story. Um, I wrote another book because of a man that I knew that was so interesting, uh, just in terms of who he was and what he did. And I I wanted to write a book there. He was a main character. Um, So, you know, I just kind of moved from from idea to idea uh, that way. And, uh, you know, so far... I mean, the well's not dry. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's 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 great. So, when you finish uh, a book, and I mean finish, you've done all your revisions, you sent it off, and maybe there's going to be some copy editing to be done. How much of a break do you give yourself before you start writing the next book? Because I know you're going to start writing before the next book comes out, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's a great question because uh, this past year there was a delay in the summer in the editing process for the book that's coming out in April. I have one coming out in April. And uh, I didn't write for seven weeks. And that was the longest I've gone without writing in over 20 years. So a lot of times it'll just be two or three, maybe four weeks, and then I'm back into another one. are you the kind of person, uh, writer, that uh, tells themselves, I'm going to show up at my computer even if I'm not sure what I'm going to write that day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I heard years and years ago that uh, Jack London used to try to have a goal of writing a thousand words a day. And so that's my rough goal is I'll try to write at least a thousand words a day, sometimes less. If they're good words, I'm happy. Uh, and toward the end of a book, it's not unusual to write more than a thousand because I'm typing as fast as I can to see what happens, you know? Yeah. So, so are you like John Grisham who knows the ending before you start? Are you like John Hart 
who uh, lets it sort of unfold as you go. I have an idea of the ending. <clears throat> I know the beginning and the end, but the middle, that's where the, that's where the discovery takes place. The muddy middle, right? You got <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. All right. I asked this question of authors who've written a number of books. Uh, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value, had you known it when you started out with your first novel would have helped you based on all your years of experience, what would it be? I would, uh, I think I would have uh, read books about writing and about character development sooner than I did. Uh, I've been heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell, uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces, and uh, Thomas Vogler's interpretation of uh, Campbell. Um, and also, I alluded earlier to the archetype concepts. I wish I had done that sooner. Uh, a lot of those things we do innately just because we absorb those dynamics in life. But, uh, you know, I wish I'd done that research a little bit sooner. I think it would have helped. But I, I tell you, Landis, I, I'm happy with my first novels. I mean, you know, I'd change some things if I were writing them today, but uh, they still sell. Uh, and I'm just, I, I recommend them to people when they have a question sometimes about what should I read. So I, I'm not living with a ton of regrets over here. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't be shy about recommending your own book. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, um, to be a writer, you've got to be a reader and you know, it's, uh, I think, as you, you you said, you do absorb a lot when you're reading. I, I, I sort of made a, I don't do resolutions by the year now. I do them month to month, you know. So uh, back in January, uh, I said, well, I'm going to start reading some old mystery detective novels just because I want to go back and read some of those. And I guarantee you I'm going to learn something intuitively from that when I write my next novel. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, look, we're coming to the end. Listeners, uh, you can jump over and listen to us uh, on Patreon. As I said, we're going to talk about how you take a novel from a novel to a movie. And uh, to, hear, to learn more about Robert and his writing, we've got links at charlottereaderspodcast.com, picture of the book cover, his mugshot, a little bit of information about him. I don't think I asked you, Robert, what, what practice you, you have. What, kind of, what do you do in the practice of law? At this point, uh, I'm a disability lawyer. Okay. And uh, all administrative trial work. Uh, yeah. and uh, hearings. Yeah. Of course, with COVID, everything's been virtual. Yeah. This is not going to be one of those, where were you on the night of, you know, whatever, right? No. <laughs> Won't be that exciting a hearing, will it? No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, look, Robert, I want to thank you for uh, for coming on, for all the books you've written and uh, being a good example for other lawyers who want to take that on. Uh, appreciate you being on Charlotte Rear's podcast. All right. Thanks so much for having me, Lance. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. 
And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.